0: Hello and welcome to Tops 10, brought to you by KTXT Radio and the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University in beautiful Lubbock. Tops 10 seeks out successful and influential people in politics, Government, the many professions, the physical and social sciences, or the arts and humanities, and ask them to reveal their lives, ideas, and ideals through their playlist. Our format is simple we ask our guests what pieces of music mean the most to them and to tell us the story behind the infatuation. Mr. Derek Ginter is our producer engineer, Ms. Lindsay Corradino. One of our undergraduate majors is our researcher. And I'm David Perlmutter, a professor at and dean of the college and the originator and sometimes host of Top's 10. Today I have with me Al Sacco, Jr. Al Sacco, Jr. is Dean of the Edward E. Whitaker, Jr. College of Engineering at Texas Tech University. Before coming to Texas Tech, he was George A. Snell, Distinguished Professor of Engineering and the Director of the Center for Advanced Microgravity Materials Processing at Northeastern University. He's a winner of many, many, many honors, uh, including being a fellow of the American Institute of Chemical Engineering and in the International Academy of Astronautics. Now, to the latter one, his most famous accomplishment, besides being dean at Texas Tech, was he flew as a payload specialist on the space shuttle Columbia on shuttle mission ST-73 in 1995. The 16-day mission aboard Columbia focused on material science, biotechnology, combustion science, and fluid mechanics contained within the pressurized space lab module. Al, you have touched the stars. You have traveled where. How many, how many only people have been in
1: space? It's gotta be less than three or 400, right? Yeah, it's about uh, 300 actually.
0: How did you end up being a payload specialist and what is a payload specialist? Lucky, I guess. A
1: payload specialist is an astronaut, uh, scientist astronaut. And basically you're picked because of your scientific uh, expertise. And NASA used to have thematic missions. that would be on fluids, they'd be on material science, biological missions, astronomy missions. And what they would do is put out a call for um, scientists around around the world and then they narrow it down and then you have to go through the normal physical stuff and all that kind of uh, to qualify and whether you, you know, feel comfortable in a closed environment and how you work under stress conditions and then if you get through all those you're lucky enough uh, you get to fly in space which is really awesome.
0: So you filled out an application form and you became an astronaut?
1: Well, Not quite I get nominated by people in the National okay. Academy of Engineering and uh, I was asked to to apply, which I did.
0: Do you have to have all the same physical uh, conditions and pass all the same tests that the regular pilot astronauts and others?
1: No, eyesight has to be 20-20 correctable, where a pilot, in order to become a pilot, has to have uh, 20-20 eyesight or better without correction. But once they become an astronaut, they sort of loosen up on that. So you have to have it to become an astronaut. But once you're an astronaut, you can uh, have 2020 correctable for the pilots as well.
0: Now you flew on Columbia. That's correct. And you almost flew
1: on the SDS fatal, 107, yes. fatal flight of Columbia. Yeah, I got bumped off by the Israeli astronaut. I was very upset at, it at the time. It turned out to be good for me and, and not so good for him. But uh, they were all my friends. They were great folks.
0: How conscious were, were you of, of safety and some of the issues that could happen on the shuttle?
1: Well, we were very, we were very well trained, and there were 701 what they call catastrophic failures, that there was no way to get away from. And what that meant is loss of vehicle. What loss of vehicle, of course, means is loss of life. And we trained uh, for everything that we could possibly correct. And after that time, you just, uh, you know, you have to make a decision: Are you willing to accept those 701? catastrophic faults that if they were to occur which there was a low probability but if they were to occur there was nothing you could do about it so we felt very confident about what we could do uh... in order to save ourselves and uh... we always felt that we'd get out of things you know uh... because we worked as a team
0: this is really interesting you said that they were on an average flight i assume your flight was no more special than than any other right. they might say well there's seven hundred and one issues which could possibly lead to your death.
1: Right. Yeah, well, that happened during training. They would talk about certain malfunctions, certain uh, contingency problems. Uh, we used to call them mode ones, mode three, mode four, which we could not take any corrective action for. For example, if the hydrogen tank exploded on the way up, there's not a lot you can do about it. You know, it depends on how it explodes. If it explodes in a certain way, the vehicle's gonna come apart. Uh, We saw that during the challenge racks. It wasn't the the liquid fuel tanks, but it was the solid fuel tanks that blew. And so we knew about those. And even the O-rings, they did a lot of work on the O-rings, but there was still a possibility of burn through. So we all knew that. We also knew that uh, we took a lot of hits from ICE, which later took down uh, uh, the Columbia um, on 107. But we never had to hit the leading edge. It always hit underneath. You'd see these gouges in the, in the uh, tiles every once in a while, and they replace them. and That's just part of the, the business.
0: You described to me once that you walked under a shuttle after a landing and saw the, as you described it, as if somebody had taken to an ice pick to the bottom there with all the gouges.
1: That's right. There were a lot of gouges, not just from launch, but a lot of... Uh, debris in space, small meteorites that chip away at those tiles and, and if they chip away a big enough hole or they chip away completely uh, to the aluminum base underneath then you have a big problem when, you, when you're when coming back in but you know the probabilities were on our side I mean the probability during launch was like 1 in 99 chance of catastrophic failure which is you know, in an experimental aircraft, which is what it was, is not so bad. I mean, for commercial aircraft, it's about one in two million, two and a half million that you'll have a problem, but it may not be a catastrophic problem. But in the shuttle, we had one in 99 chance of a catastrophic um, problem. So you had to accept that risk. If you weren't gonna accept that risk, uh, then it wasn't the business for you to be in.
0: Al, your first song that you uh, gave to us is, the birds turn, turn, turn to everything there is a season and you mentioned to me that this uh, sums up in some way your life philosophy and your personal life career philosophy. Uh, did you carry that into space? Was there any music on the shell? Did you listen yeah, to Yeah, we, we
1: actually had, uh, uh, not, not uh, iPods, they weren't around that time, but we had small tape recorders with music on it. In fact, we oftentimes, uh, when we were allowed to, uh, because they were always watching us with cameras and listening to us, uh, we would play it throughout the space cabin while we were doing things. We'd all have different uh, sets of music. So, yeah, I had that on. But I, I usually use that as uh, a song for transitions in life. And what I mean is, you know, when you go from high school to college or you, uh, when I left the astronaut office, for example, on my first flight mm-hmm. in space, you know, it always came to me that for everything there is a season. And uh, so I don't get discouraged. You know, I mean, I hated leaving the space program. I would have loved to stay there forever. But there comes a time where... You're just not capable to do it anymore. You get older. And so for every time there is a season. And I think about that, uh, you know, when my parents passed away, for every time there's a season. So every kind of life change, I always listen to that song and think of that song. Because I really believe it's true. everything tender,
2: tender, there is a season.
0: Northeastern. Are you a Northeastern
1: guy? I, I did my undergraduate uh, BS degree at Northeastern, yeah. Did you grow up in Boston? I did. I grew up in what's called the North End of Boston, or Little Italy, they used to call it. Now it's sort Best of Best seafood
0: in the country.
1: Yeah, it is. It's got very good seafood. It's got very good Italian food. It's much more commercial than when I grew up. Uh, Astoundingly expensive much now. Yes. Know. <laughs> and at the time, it was an area that everybody wanted to leave uh, because it was a low-income area when I grew up and now it's a, an area that everybody wants to go into and it's very expensive. Did you
0: grow up in a family that uh, was interested in, in science at all? Where did you get your first inklings of
1: well, your
0: career goals?
1: that's interesting really from my older brother. He, uh, I was very close to my older brother, We always, even though he's ten years older than I am and we always hung out together and he took me everywhere and he went into electrical engineering and that's how I get involved with, I love science because I loved him and anything he did I looked up to and um, What happened was I didn't like, you know, he would be taking apart and wiring things in the house. At that time, you could do that. You didn't need, uh, you know, to have special permission and all this kind of stuff and a permit. But I didn't find that fun at all. I mean, I thought that was boring, but I still wanted to get into science because he was in science. So when I went into school, I started to uh, look at different options, and I liked chemistry. Um, And I did well in chemistry, and I used to think about putting things together, you know, putting molecules together to make whatever I wanted. So... But then I realized chemists really work at a very small level and really look at uh, discovering new chemicals. And what I wanted to do was do something with them. So that's how I ended up in chemical engineering, because engineering takes what the chemist discovers and really applies it to the world. And I also was always thinking of space. And I thought at one time that, and I still believe this will happen, that we'll go out and we'll uh, colonize the universe by going to those planets and by harvesting whatever the soil is, you know, making up structures just like they did coming out here to Lubbock, Texas when they moved from the east to the west coast.
0: Your next song is Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone. Now, of course, I think that speaks to some of the experience in your life. Uh, Chemical engineering, is there a level of danger there to some of the experiments that that you've done? Do you blow things up?
1: (laughs) No, I don't really blow things up. That really, uh, what I like about the Danger Zone is it captured the feelings that I had. You know, we learn how to fly, flying high-speed jets. And we used to chase each other all over the sky in order to try to pull uh, various G loadings because what we wanted to do is become what they call G tolerant. So we would take off the G suits and would slowly ramp up the Gs. And in order to do that, you have to really make very aggressive maneuvers. So I think that song captures the way I used to feel flying all over the the sky, mostly off the Gulf uh, Coast of, of the US or or sometimes off the uh, Atlantic coast in Florida. We used to chase each other all around uh, just to try to get our uh, bodies G-conditioned for the flight.
0: Is it true that Tom Cruise character in Tom Gunn was based on you?
1: (laughs) No, I don't think so, but it was probably based on one of the guys I flew with, which was uh, Ken Rommager. Ken Rommager actually won the prize. He would be the equivalent of the Iceman in that movie uh, for Top Gun. and he flew an aircraft like like you and I breathe, I mean, it was so natural for him, and it was such a pleasure. Uh, sometimes I flew in the back seat with him, um, and he would just, he could make that that plane just spin. No one could ever catch us. We'd always come up on that. And then, of course, pilots like to come up behind each other and see if they can sneak up and get, you know, a so-called shot on them, on the other guy, so... Uh, it's good-natured fun, but it's, it's really uh, high-speed maneuvers. And that song really, they did a good job capturing the feeling that you get flying those aircraft.
0: I mean, it sounds like you've just done some pretty interesting things in your life that the average chemical engineer, and we have a lot of stereotypes of scientists, as I'm sure you imagine, of uh, low communication skills, inwardly focused, uh, people just basically stuck in their lab all the time. But it seems like you're reaching out to new frontiers all the
1: time. Yeah, I would say I'm a big risk taker. In fact, I think without big risk, you can't get big rewards. So I do a lot of different things. I mean, I've been scuba diving, again, started with my brother since I've been about 10 years old. I have 3,000 log dives all over the world. Um, Flew aircraft, of course, and then flew in the shuttle. But I don't don't take stupid risks. I take calculated risks. I don't, uh, and I take risks that have a, a meaning. For example, one of the things that we were doing in the shuttle, people often ask me, why would you take that risk? And it's not only me taking the risk, of course, it's my kids and everybody else and my family taking the risk as well. Uh, because if something happens to me, they're left without a provider, so um, you take that risk because you have a dream, and my dream was to make humanity better, and, and we, for example, were the first crew that uh, crystallized uh, the HIV protein in orbit. Some of those um, crystals were used to help develop the retro drugs. Uh, because we got more uniform crystals in space. We also looked for a way to develop quantum wires in space. We did a lot of things that some worked out, some of it didn't, but that's science. So you take a risk uh, based on a dream. And I think if you're really going to make a difference in this world, you have to listen to your dreams and if you really think it's worth it, you have to take the risk.
0: Your next song, another famous one from a movie soundtrack, Rocky III, is Survivor, Eye of the Tiger. I, I've probably seen that song used in either a parody montage, and I think most younger people today have not seen Rocky right. III, but they know the song from some parody mo- right. montage of somebody like you know taking out the garbage and uh, sort of heroic uh, right. music in, in the background, Eye of the Tiger.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, Eye of the Tiger was... Uh, something I thought about mostly I used to actually wear a headset when I ran in the morning and, and getting up at Houston at uh, 530 in the morning it was 75 degrees as humid as you can believe a hundred percent humidity and we had a workout every day and sometimes uh, we couldn't schedule it during the day, so the only time I could either do it, it was morning at nighttime, And I didn't want to do it at night because I never got home before 8 or 9 at, at night while we were training. Uh, so I did it at 4.30 in the morning, and that's the song I was put up because the starting stanza says, you know, we're back on the street, and, and that's all I felt like. And I used to drag myself out of bed, but that song would get me pumped up and I'd start running and feeling like uh, it was worth it. And uh, You know, it's very competitive to be in the astronaut corps. You have to keep yourself really tough in top condition mentally and physically. And that takes an effort, it doesn't just happen. So I used to get up and plunge into it every morning. and I mean, I would literally drip drip off uh, six, seven pounds of weight in the course of running five to 10 miles in that heat every morning. And um, that's the song I listen to every time I get up.
0: You mentioned something interesting, and I want to go back to your college years and, and your first days in academia. You mentioned hard work. Right. Do we, do we forget sometimes in the society that the, the, the intense amount of hard work you have to put in to be successful in something?
1: Well, I think I do. I mean, people my age certainly feel that way. I mean, we look at young kids today and, and they're brighter than we ever were. Uh, most of them work out and they're in better shape than I was at their age sometimes. Uh, but what they don't have is the the resiliency to hang into something where they don't get a quick reward for it. Uh, you often hear uh, recruiters, they often come to me and say what they love about Texas Tech kids, which are different than many of the other schools, is that our kids are willing to work for five or ten years before they become the vice president of the company. Many kids coming out of school today across the U.S. Uh, within a year or two, they want a BMW, they want to be the manager of the operation. And they just think, I don't know whether it's because we have this fast reward society that they think that's the way it is. You know, it took me, I, you know, to get into the astronaut corps, it took me almost 22 years. You know, when I first applied, they told me I needed more education. I got my PhD, then they needed, they said I needed more work experience. It was only after all of those things. So it took almost 22 years of reapplying uh, before they said I had, the right combination of things. I mean, that's a long time. You know, if you really want something, you have to persevere, and uh, and then the other thing is you have to be willing to take a risk, because the selection process—it's about, you know, when I when I was uh, eventually nominated and had the right criteria for it, it took about—they uh, they took eighty thousand applied, of that they narrowed it down to a hundred. We all went for a physical of that. They ended up with 16, and the 16, what they did with us is they put us through a one-day oral exam where they, and I'll tell you, this is a funny story, what they did was they gave us a box full of Xerox copies of articles that various scientists have written because I was applying to be a scientist astronaut. And they gave it to me after my last physical on Friday afternoon. And they told me, take it and read it and show up at Monday morning at 8 o'clock, and I was going to have a six-hour oral on everything in the box. So, of course, I went to my hotel room and I started reading, and it was in biology and chemistry and physics, mathematics, things I had never even had in school or I had 10 years ago. And after a while, I realized there was no way that I could ever know all this stuff, so I just accepted the fact that I wasn't gonna get selected. And what happened is when I went up before it, they asked me all questions that I didn't know and I, I, because I knew I flunked, right, because I didn't know this stuff, I just went up and said, well, if I was gonna solve this, what I'd do with this? And I'd lay out a carefully uh, constructed idea of how I would try to go about solving it. And um, they asked me one question after another and after a while it became funny, so I'd make little jokes well again, I don't know how to do this, but if I was. you know, and I, At the end of which time, I was surprised to find at the end of the week, the following week, I had a phone call and said I was selected. And when I got back, I asked the committee, why did they select me? And they said, well, because you did a good job in the oral. I said, I didn't know a single question, not one. And they said to me, well, but the whole test was, no one could have known those questions. What we wanted to see is under pressure how you reacted, whether you got nervous, whether you, you couldn't think, He said, not only could you think, you started telling jokes. He said, that's the kind of person we want because we always have troubles in orbit and we don't want you to get nervous about it. Your next two songs are
0: from an artist that I wouldn't necessarily associate with you until I saw this list, Beth Midler. Beth Midler, what is your relationship with Beth Midler, Al? Tell us the truth here.
1: (laughs) No, I don't know Beth, I just like her songs, I like her singing, I really do. Have you ever
0: attended a concert?
1: No, You know, I've never gone to a concert in my entire life. I've never been to one before. I'm not into big crowds and stamping my feet and all that kind of stuff.
0: But you'd accept a personal
1: performance or I something? I would, yes. Happy birthday, Dean Yeah, exactly. a small group of 20
0: people and me. Okay, that we'll try to good. book her for your next Well, birthday. that's good. And yeah, I, Derek, Derek is I don't a don't say it friend. if you don't mean it. <laughs> okay, well, I don't mean it. I don't mean anything <laughs> yeah. I say here. So I'm the dean of media, remember. So, so. Next song is Beth Midler, Wind Beneath My Wings.
3: It must have been cold there Never have sunlight on your face You are content to let me shine That's your way You always walked a step behind So I to rain.
0: That how I felt about my family and parents, as I seemed to get all the glory during various stages of my career, but they were always supportive. And were they always uh, yes, supportive? Yes,
1: they were always supportive. You know, and um, even when things didn't go right, they were always there and they were always behind me. And uh, really was true. I mean, I went to many places and um, took them with me when I got my the the United States Space Flight Medal and all the stuff. And it struck me that. I was up there, and everybody was clapping for me, and of course they were as well. But really, what got me there was the, was my family. And they're the ones that created the person that I am. That had the kind of uh, dogged determination came from my dad and my mother. The confidence that I could do anything came from them. You know, they always. My dad used to always say to me that you have two arms, two legs, and a brain, just like anyone else. So if they can do it, you can do it. You just have to decide you're not going to quit when things get tough. And. Um, so whenever I got an award for anything, and, and to this day, I think about my parents and and my kids as well. My, I brought up my kids that way as well, and so they're all uh, not overly confident, uh, but confident enough to realize that if they really want it, uh, they'll get it. And whenever my kids say, "Geez, I'd really like to do that," and I said, "Well, you know what the you know what it is? If you really want it, you go out and get it, and you won't quit until you get it."
0: Where was your first job as a professor? You
1: got your Ph.D. Yep. And my first job, I had a, an offer to stay at MIT. I didn't. I went to WPI, and I didn't for a reason. I was always kind of a, a risk taker. And my thought was, what I saw at, at, at MIT at the time was, was a lot of people that were competing. And when I was there, um, they would bring in nine people, and they'd keep three. And uh, I just said to myself, I don't want to be in that kind of environment, because I really want to teach and do research. So I went to WPI which was a teaching institution at the time and i started doing research now they're in the top forty in the country but when i was there uh... it was much more teaching uh group with selected research areas. And I started my research career there, but it was much better balance for me. I could spend half my time on educational stuff, teaching and working with students, and the other half writing proposals and doing research, of which I love as well. And I knew I could do it very well. I've always had a very well-funded research program. So I spent a time there, and I really enjoyed it. And I ended up being a department head there for 10 years. It was a great place, and it still is a great place, and it's a great university.
0: Teaching and research are sometimes posed as in opposition to each other, that either you're a very successful researcher or you're a good teacher. But I th- I think one of the things that struck me when I first met you and as and your reputation as an administrator is that you
1: do value both for your college. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact I if you that's a myth, really. If you look and, and a myth that's promulgated sometimes by our own uh, academic friends because if they don't want to teach or they don't want to do research they usually say you can't be a good teacher and you can't be a good researcher and they point to some uh, some person that had done something wrong but in fact if you look at the best teachers and best researchers um, the Nobel Prize winners very often they're teaching freshman classes um, people in National Academy I know very few that don't want to teach two or three classes a year uh, and still do their research when I was uh, at the height of my game in research, I had a $3 million a year program, which is a large program. I didn't have to teach at all. I bought myself out. But I insisted on teaching one undergraduate course and one graduate course every year. Um, and because I loved it. And I love to teach and I think, my I know, my research made me a better teacher because I could bring in examples of of, the, of what was really happening now in the future and make research come alive because after all, what research is, is an extension of teaching, right? I mean, it's, it's developing knowledge. And when I teach, I learn from my students and the students learn from me. It's not a one-way street and when I do research, I'm trying to figure out nature's is trying to teach me something and I'm trying to figure out what it is and teach it to my students. So to me, it's a continuum. And I really do believe and value them both equally. And I'm very proud of my college that we have some absolutely superb teachers, and they are rewarded for it as equally as well as some of our superb researchers. I, I and, and I will say, most of the best teachers are also very good researchers, if not excellent researchers.
0: Your next song from Beth Midler is From a Distance. And it is a song about looking at the beautiful orb of, of, right. of the earth from a distance and getting perspective right perspective on on where you are uh, who we are as, as a species this as this uh, pale blue dot as uh carl sagan right. finally uh said when you were in space did you get a perspective on how all the hard work that you did to achieve the things that you've achieved was worth it but also to take into account that within the greater context of humanity we perhaps don't always achieve everything we can achieve but that's all right, right you know because we're working together as a species not just a group of individuals right
1: mm-hmm. uh, and you know I have a, a, a mantra I put in the college it's called a community of scholars more than just a group of individuals for that very reason and I did when you're in orbit looking down upon the earth there's a couple of things that strike you one is to get at your first part of your question why am I here why me because every virtually everybody would like to go into space. Now, are they willing to put in the sacrifice and are they willing to take the risk? Then it narrows it down pretty quickly, but, but the bottom line is it's beautiful in space and you look down upon the earth and it suddenly strikes you that, you know, and then you look out into the cosmos that you're not really a, a member of Texas or a citizen of Texas, or a citizen of the U.S., or even a citizen of the Earth, but you're a citizen of the universe. And the other thing that strikes you is the Earth is so beautiful but also so very tiny, like the smallest grain of sand and the largest beach, which means that we're really insignificant and suddenly strikes you that with all the hard work and everything you've done and the luck that you have to get to get into space, that we are pretty insignificant in the overall cosmic scheme of things. And so when you come back, your perspective is much different. You don't get as aggravated with things. You uh, realize that, again, for everything there's a reason, at least I did, and, and you realize that uh, why get really worried about things, because the Earth is pretty insignificant. I mean, it's it's hard to explain to someone that hasn't been in space, but it hits you like a cold slap across the face. Uh, the other thing that hits you is why do we have all these wars because you know when you're looking down at the earth it's beautiful and there's no boundaries you see no boundaries and you have a, a at least i had many of my friends they used to call it the astronaut secret you have a feeling of oneness with everything living and we used to call it the what the hindus call the blanket of life um, and it's really a very strong feeling that you have with everything living uh, and it, it makes you wonder why um, we have the wars we have. And we often used to say in orbit, we didn't have a lot of time to talk, but once in a while we'd have a few minutes. We'd think to ourselves, if all the leaders in the world could spend even 90 minutes went over to the Earth, things would be a lot different. They'd see things a lot differently. They'd wonder why they weren't. They were fighting over what they're fighting about. It's really a, a, a mind-opening kind of a experience.
3: From a distance, the world looks blue. And green, and the snow-capped mountains white. From a distance, the ocean meets the stream, and the eagle takes to flight. It's the voice of every man From a distance
0: Your next song is Dan Fogelberg, leader of the band, which you talk about is related to memories
1: of your father. What did you call your father? Dad. Um, yeah, my dad was was,
0: was he a, was he first generation or yes he, he
1: was first been? generation. He had a the equivalent of a ninth grade education. He did everything for his family. He was a prize fighter for a while, and then he became a bartender and. He ended up working his way up to buying a small restaurant which is sort of when i came into the the fold you know when i was born uh, italian he, restaurant italian restaurant checkered yeah. tablecloths yes or, exactly yeah. checkered tables the whole bit just like you see in the movies very small dark kind of place and typical italian He put up christmas lights and he wouldn't take them down to the the following september and then put them up into you know, the be up all the time and it's just very typical italian and we uh, you know we had holidays we had everybody over the house even though we didn't have a lot we always ate well and my dad was you know he taught me everything i know he taught me about being a uh, never quitting, never giving up uh, i told you he mentioned before if you have two arms and two legs and a brain why can't you do anything you want to do anything you see someone else that you want to do and he would always say if you want to be a good athlete or whatever it is you have to be willing to put in the time and whoever puts in the time is going to do it it's no secret and he was just a hard worker he'd work night and day, and, it, and you know all my uh, siblings are hard workers, my two sisters, my brother, we were all brought up that way. And he was just an amazing guy because he had no education and yet uh, he was very bright. So what, I, what it made me realize, and he used to interact with people that had Harvard degrees and, and all sorts of things, and what I realized is college and education is not what makes you really smart. It's a means to get a job perhaps and, and be educated in a certain area. But there's a you know there's a certain innate uh, brilliance that everybody has, and he had it, and he was just a brilliant businessman. He knew what to do, and um, no formal training, no understanding. It just came to him naturally. He was very good with people. Um, everybody loved him. He was also very kind to people. But but he was hard. He had a lot of tough love too. And we I mean he was not afraid uh, to sit you down and give you a slap. You know. I mean, I used to laugh. We used to have to make homemade sausages, just like you see in the movies. I laugh sometimes because it reminds me of my childhood. People think it's in the movies and it's quaint. It wasn't a lot of fun. We would make homemade sausages. And if I dropped something, because meat was so, you know, we were so uh, stri- uh, struck with having just a small amount. We had to have everything count. We'd be sticking them in the skins. And if I dropped a little thing, it'd bang me on the back of the head. And, I, you know, I often kidded uh, my brother, I said. By the well, way,
0: I, I should tell our listeners: you do this with the other deans too that's when We right. don't uh, perform exactly. Up well. Exactly. You know, I, 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 I don't appreciate it, Alex. I want to let you know, but but you're too tough, so I won't I say know, anything. You're not going
1: to say anything, but yeah. But uh, yeah, I used to feel like I had a permanent handprint in the back of my head, you know, because every time it hit me, give me a whack. But uh, that's that's you the got. Do you
0: feel up. his hand hovering over you now? If you don't, I do. if, you don't yeah, do, if I don't say the right thing,
1: yeah, exactly. Up to expectations. But he was he was awesome, and he was always uh, always there. He never. Uh, no matter what I did no matter what trouble I get in or my brother get in my brother was more of a hellraiser than I was but he would always be there so he may you know behind closed doors give you a piece of his mind or more uh, but with, to the outside world he was united with all of us he defended us and and he was just an awesome guy and I learned everything I've learned and everything that I am now is in a big part of, part of him and my mother they were a very good pair a very good couple that way
4: only child alone and wild, a cabinet maker's son. His hands were meant for different work, and his heart was known to none. He left his arm and went his loan and solitary way. And he gave to me a gift I know I never can repay.
0: quiet man
4: of music denied a simpler fate He tried to be a soldier once, but his music wouldn't wait He earned his love through discipline, a thundering velvet hand His gentle means of sculpting souls took me years to understand
0: your next song is also, Dan Fogelberg, Magic Every Moment. And you told us that how I try to live my life and teach the ones I love, how they need to look at every day and to think every day is something to cherish and yeah. think is important.
1: Exactly. I mean, that song is, uh, really sums up the way I, I uh, learned to live uh, my life, which is, and every day there's a miracle. You just have to look for it. And uh, even when things are difficult, there are always miracles. There's always small things that can make you smile. And you really need to, to appreciate the breath you take. If your neck isn't sore, like I have a stiff neck right now, you know, uh, those small things that make life worth living. And in the end, it's the small things that really count. It's not the amount of money you make. It's not the awards you win. It's not any of those things. It's the small things in life and the, and the relationships you have with people uh, that really make life worth living. And, and those are the things you remember. I do think that, uh, again, the Earth is very unique, but it's also very small. I mean, when I was in space, the thing that struck me, which I had never thought of before, is really how small the Earth is. I mean, you see it there, and it's beautiful. It's like a jewel hanging in the blackest black you've ever seen, surrounded by billions of stars. And each one of those stars has, or many of them, have planets surrounding them. And it's more than the mind can even comprehend. I mean, it just goes on forever in every direction you look at. And it makes you realize that, you know, how very lucky we are to have the planet that we live on.
4: I awoke this morning to a shattering sound. And I went downstairs and found these shards of glass strewn all around. And there, up on the floor, I found this poor broken door. And it made me realize how very fragile is this life that we so love. Up to bed, and I held you so tight, and I prayed up to the Father, oh I prayed with all my might, that it'd always keep you with me, that it'd always keep you safe. And when I went downstairs, I found that dove had somehow been blown away. There's a magic every moment, there's an
2: eerie each day, there's a magic every moment, oh. Whoa.
0: The next song, I think also related to what we're talking about, is Elton John, Circle of Life.
1: Well, again, that relates to this same kind of thing I talked about. I think uh, I often wonder why um, I ended up where I am, and I had friends, quite honestly, that ended up in prison from where I grew up, and, and, and what made the difference, you know? Our younger
0: listeners probably don't remember there was a famous... Um, James Cagney movie with Pat O'Brien as the yeah. priest and there were two young punks and I, I don't know if it was the north end of Boston right. or not but basically both of them ran away from the police and one was able to scramble over a fence and so he went off to have be a successful right. you know, good citizen and the other one became a gangster. And right. At the end of the movie the gangster is... Uh, um, executed for his crimes, and in those days you were punished for being a criminal in movies, right. and uh, the priest says, well, let's say a prayer for a kid who couldn't climb a fence as fast as another, you know, that right. for the sake, for the goodness of God, one person ends up in one direction or, an, or another. Have you, have you seen people that just fate and circumstance did, didn't allow them to achieve what they could have achieved, or, or do you think it, work and intensity and focus
1: matter much more? I think work and, and uh, focus matter more, but I do think that people are put in more difficult circumstances so they have to work harder to get out of it, and um, sometimes it's very difficult to get out of certain circumstances. But it's all about, I, I keep going back, and it's the way I was brought up, it's all, all about how bad you want it. If you want it bad enough, nothing's too deep or nothing's too high to achieve. Uh, it's just a matter of how much you want to put into yourself, it may take 22 years to get to what you want of constantly trying to to move in that direction. But I really think everyone can do it. Uh, they just need to decide that they really wanna do it. Most people, uh, not most people, but many people will quit as soon as things get tough. And they may do it once, they may get up off the ground a couple of times, and that's what the Rocky movies used to show, he kept getting up off the ground. And I think that that really is the heart of a champion. You know, the per- It's not the person that stands up and is best, it's when they get knocked on there, Backside, and they have to get up with the realization that I just got knocked on my backside. This guy can take my head off. That uh, they get up and do it, and I think the ability to do that, to take a risk, and, and the thing—the funny part about risk is there's no guarantee you're going to be successful. So you're taking, you're stepping off of that platform and that's the same way it was in the shuttle. We had no idea when that candle lit, we knew the problems that could develop. We didn't know whether we would survive the launch, we would survive the landing, but we went after it because we decided that's what we wanted, it was worth the risk.
0: I'm concerned now, I'm sure you are, about the cost of college do you think uh, we've lost something as a society for investing in how kids can get through I, I certainly in our era you know I, I think you're just a little bit older than, than yeah. me about 25 30 years I believe that, oh yeah, you, right. That's right. yeah. Um, you know you could get through school working most of the people right. the alumni I meet say 50 years or older would say yeah you know I had a job I worked very hard but I, I was think. able to pay off school and the astounding debt is was just unknown to them
1: I hear what you're saying it's a it's a complicated problem though and and I work my way through school my parents didn't have any money to pay. The problem is, how do you get high-quality faculty? They now, faculty are demanding a, a living wage. When we went to school, faculty weren't paid very much and they were okay with that. And they were okay with that because the profession itself, I believe anyways, if you were a faculty member, everybody loved you and you were like, wow, faculty member, and you were given a lot of prestige, that's not the, that's not the case anymore. Uh, you're a faculty member at, uh, even at Harvard, people say, okay, but it's not a big deal. It's not like it used to be, where you were like a, a little gog, a, a god or a celebrity. Uh, and so what they did is they were allowed themselves to be paid less because there was a lot of admiration that they lived off of, in essence. Now it's more of a job, I think, so you ended up paying faculty more, and that drives the costs up. The other thing, in my estimation, that's that was done for all the right reasons but got out of control is all the government regulations that require that we put in a variety of different Um, folks in order to make sure we meet government-regulated mandates. Um, And what that has done is, I look at it like a mushroom. The top part of the mushroom, the cap, has grown to a much greater extent than than the stem, which is where the faculty in the classroom are. And when that gets too tall, when that gets too big, that, that cap gets too big, the mushroom falls to the right or to the left.
0: I remember I was at another university and I met a gentleman who was actually a former journalist and his full-time job was just answering Freedom of Information Act right. requests. So I was thinking probably 30 years ago that university did not have a job category right, exactly. of doing that. There's just a lot of things that we're required to do that we have um, more people doing Which is not our fault. I mean, but again, governments, uh, agencies, uh, also, um, I guess, you know, what we call the uh, lazy river standard. You know, when I came here from the University of Iowa, the University of Iowa had a rec center with a climbing wall. And a lazy river, but I came here to Texas Tech, and gosh darn, your, your lazy river and your, your climbing wall is much bigger and right. much better than, than ours. And, you know, students want that. I mean, the, the, when you see the undergraduates right. with their parents going on the tour, they I'm sure they come by your petroleum lab. But right. they also go by the rec center, and they look at the dorms, and the parents today would just not accept, nor kids, an un-air-conditioned un- 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 dorm. Right. I, I was at LSU for 10 years, and one of the faculty there was a, w- had been a student. He said, yeah, we had un-air-conditioned dorms. It was just normal. Well, they did thinking, it here at
1: Texas Tech as well. Yeah, yeah,
0: and I just think the the average middle class or almost any parent would just not accept that today. Right,
1: and that's another cost driver. You're right, and, and not only that, people are – Picking colleges for all the wrong reasons, in my estimation. For example, they look at the beauty of a campus. Now we we're lucky to have a very beautiful campus, but that costs a lot of money to maintain it. We're constantly rotating the flowers. Every university is doing that, because that that is something that parents are looking at and students. Well, this is a nice place to be. You know, when we're, when I went to school, I went to school in the inner city. You know, for lack of a better uh, description, ours just looked like uh, you know brick buildings that were like 30 feet tall I vis- visited the Northeastern University and obviously they've done a
0: lot <laughs> recently to try to right. make things look better and put up right. some
1: flags and right. polish
0: the buildings but it, it's, not, no, it's, it's not the, the most prettiest campus exactly yeah.
1: but I got a good a very good education there from the day
5: we arrive on the planet and blinking step to the sun there's more to and can never be seen More to do Than can never be done Some say eat will Some say Live and let live But all our reprieve Is to join the stampede you should never take more than you give in the circle of...
0: Then your last song is another Elton John song. Can you feel the love tonight? Again, Al, I just didn't associate this song with you <laughs> I until I
1: read it. No, I, I, it's really—I think it's a great song, and it—you uh, know—again, it's my philosophy in life and how I feel about things. And um, as you can probably tell, I'm, I use music to motivate myself, and I use it to, to change my moods. Maybe many people do, I suspect, but. Um, And I look for meaning in songs. And what I like is song writers that uh, have an experience that's so intense for them that they could actually write it up and sing it. Uh, Sometimes someone else writes it, but someone else sings it. But someone that puts down life's experiences, because we all feel these things. And and, um, you know, I go through my life wondering why I've been so lucky to do what I've done. I mean, I've worked at it, and there's no question about that. But there always has to be a little bit of luck a little bit of luck all the time and why one person you know makes it to the nba and the other person twists his ankle just before the tryout you know that kind of thing but the other thing is you can't quit and and i live my life just uh... trying to push forward and you know as a dean at texas tech I'm, my job is to take us to the top fifty in the country and as long as i'm here i'll do everything in my power to do exactly that
0: what would be the images and the montage of you working your way up to the top fifty in the country with of the Tiger plane,
1: maybe? Well, I think you'd see a lot of pictures. You'd see me sweating. You'd see me talking to faculty. You'd see faculty yelling at me. Uh, you'd see students yelling at me. You'd see students clapping. There'd be a lot of different emotions. Uh, because to to move a ship like Texas Tech, uh, which is an excellent university, and make it an elite university, means you have to change the path a little bit while maintaining everything that's good about Texas Tech, that, that made it the kind of university it is. And that's a delicate balance, and, and we do make mistakes. I make mistakes, others. What I tell my leadership team all the time is, you know what, if we try something new, and you have to try something new, we we'll take a risk if we're gonna change. But if it doesn't work, we'll change it back. We're no, we don't have our feet in concrete, we're, we're nimble. And I'm not embarrassed to say I made a mistake, so uh, I just keep pushing forward.
0: Al, when a student graduates from your college, whether it's mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, uh, what what are all the specialties in your college? You have petroleum engineering.
1: Yeah, petroleum engineering, mechanical engineering, civil and environmental engineering, uh, electrical and computer uh, engineering. We have computer science. We have wind. Uh, we have uh, probably the number one wind program in the country. Which is really unique, and and if you're around Lubbock for any length of time, you understand why we have a wind program.
0: Now, all of these people will graduate with a degree in engineering. That's correct. It reunifies them. I remember years ago I read a really powerful statement by President Herbert Hoover, who unfortunately you know faced the depression uh, at the end of his career as president. But um, he was an engineer, a very famous engineer for many years, and it was and he said, the engineer is the only professional who cannot cover his failures <laughs> everybody else can like maybe put some landscaping in front of something right. or or talk talk his way through something but uh, if the engineer makes a mistake on a bridge or a car or i guess a, a chemical formula right. you see it because it blows up or it crashes or it, right. it hurts people uh Do you feel that there's some sort of unified promise that you're giving parents and employers about when somebody graduates with an engineering degree from
1: the college? Well, I think there is. I mean, we have a a contract, if you will, with society. Because you're exactly right. Uh, You know, even the shuttle launches—I had to depend on 100,000 engineers working together, and I didn't want one to be have cheated on an exam to get through, because that was my life on the line and my colleagues and my friends and, and the dreams of a nation. So engineering is a very serious profession. Uh, we have what we call the uh, Iron Ring Ceremony that celebrates that, that, that talks to uh, students about the fact that you're entering in a profession where society expects you to be right and expects you to double and triple check uh, what you're doing to make sure that they're not hurt. And when an engineer makes a mistake, you know about it. Something happens. And so we, what I talk to the faculty about all the time is, even though we're, we're growing quickly and we're trying to keep people in school and we're, we have, I think, a very student-oriented kind of a program, we can never forget the fact that there are people that wanna be engineers that perhaps don't have the desire or will to stay in and really work at it. So don't just pass them through. You need to let them know that, we, you know, you can't have an engineer developing a car that you're gonna have your kids in that fails at the wrong time because he really wasn't that interested but it was a great profession where he could make a lot of money so we we talk about that quite a bit we talk about that in classes as part of the ethics training that we have you know it's hard it's hard for kids to grasp it sometimes because they've only been around seventeen eighteen nineteen years and they just take for granted that a car always works when you turn it on an airplane always seems to fly you never hear them crash except every once in a great while and then no one seems to know why it happened uh... but That's because we've graduated over the the years, many, many very good engineers with very few problems. I mean, you can have an accident even if they did a good engineering job because they didn't understand something. But they're entering a profession where they're expected to be right all the time. And that's a big responsibility. The kids don't really think about that until you say to them, you're expected to be right all the time. And they remember all those exams where they calculated it wrong and they think to themselves, wow. And I've often had them say, well, how am I gonna be right all the time? And I said, well, you're not gonna be right by yourself. Remember, you're gonna be working in a team of people. So everybody's gonna check everybody else to make sure that you're right uh, before it goes out. So,
0: But you don't wanna be the weakest link. You don't wanna be thing. the
1: weakest link. And, and if you are the weakest link, you will not be in that job very long because uh, it's, a, it's a very uh, unforgiving profession. If you don't, if you can't do it, they're going to get you out.
0: Well, Al Sacco, thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, I think that I speak for probably all your students and some of, no, most of your family, (laughs) (laughs) that uh, we do appreciate very much your ideas and your ideals about engineering because it is the profession that uh, safeguards all of our lives, but also. finds the pathway for our future. So thank you, sir. Well, thank you very much, David. I have enjoyed it. Thank you.
5: There's a time for everyone If they only Kaleidoscope Moves us all In turn There's a rhyme And reason To the wild Outdoors
2: When the
5: heart Of the star-crossed Voyager Beats in time With yours It's enough to make kings and vagabonds.